Well, this Thursday marks a celebration on the historic church calendar of the Epiphany. And, uh, you know, an Epiphany is when your eyes are opened, your understanding is opened, you, come, you become cognizant of something in this dramatic moment that uh, beforehand you just didn't have the knowledge or the awareness of. And, of course, in the scriptures, the, the Epiphany that historically is celebrated at the beginning of January each year is when God gives the sign of his majestic grace in the heavens to the Magi uh, who uh, represent this glorious picture of God's grace being uh, extended to the nations. And so we have our text this morning from Matthew chapter 2 where God um, gives this sign to these cultural leaders um, and he does this in such a way that just uh, provokes us to see his goodness, his love, his plan that the saving grace of Jesus Christ would go throughout all the world. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read to verse 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw a star when it rose, and we've come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among all the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen, when it rose, it went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word. Now, for those of us who didn't grow up in liturgical churches, we may be wondering, and I include myself in this because I didn't grow up that way, uh, why are we preaching at the beginning of January after Christmas, you know, this Christmas story. We've seen the cards. We've seen the nativity scene. The, 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 the wise men were there. Why are we doing this? It's, it's like we're, we're doing this thing out of order. Um, but the, those, um, those nativity sets that we've become so familiar with, as uh, beautiful and encouraging and nostalgic as they are, they're some, sometimes quite unhelpful. Because, of course, they put the Magi there at the birth of Christ. And this is actually taking place about two years later. And sometimes those nativity scenes do other things that are cute but unhelpful. Like maybe the little drummer boy is there with Santa giving gifts in a weird multiverse Christmas mashup. Uh, or, or, you know, the, the wise men, like I mentioned, they're there. So it's like a confusing Terminator timeline. What's going on? When are these things all taking place? But this is actually two years after uh, the birth of Christ. And I want us to look at this text this morning and be encouraged by this epiphany um, with three major themes that not only occur here, but actually these, these three major themes play out significantly all throughout Matthew's gospel. 
Those themes are, firstly, there's a clash of thrones. Secondly, there's an epiphany of grace. And thirdly, there's a ministry of reconciliation. So first, let's consider this clash of thrones. The news that the king had come, it provoked two significantly different reactions. Um, The Magi worshipped at Christ's throne. Herod protected his. The Magi bent their knee to Christ's lordship, and Herod rejected Christ to maintain his lordship. And to borrow from the historian N.T. Wright, the church does well to keep Christ in Christmas, but we would also do well to keep Herod in Christmas. Because keeping Herod in Christmas makes us really think about the clash of thrones. Really makes us think about the fact that there really are only two responses to Christ, and it's these. You bow down and worship him, or you seek to destroy him. Crown him or kill him. Receive him or reject him. These are the, these are the only responses to Jesus Christ. They're, it's provocative. And so, in verse 2, we see that the Magi, they ask Herod this terrifying question. They say, where's the one born king? And when you go and visit the king, and you stare into the eye of the king, and then you say, hey king, where's the king? It doesn't get any more political than that. It doesn't get any more provocative than that. To say to the one who, by all appearances, is in charge, and then I'm asked them where the one is who's in charge. So this is how this whole thing begins. And the text says that Herod is terrified and all Jerusalem with him, and, uh, or troubled, depending on your translation. The, the word in uh, the, the Greek is anthrake. And that word means to have this crippling inner anxiety. It's a really strong word. All of us struggle with moments of anxiety. We all do. But if you've ever had a moment or a season or a struggle with crippling, debilitating anxiety, that's what happened here. It was a, such a jarring moment for Herod. And that phrase, all, all Jerusalem with him, meant... meant all those appointed by, all the leaders in Jerusalem who were appointed by Rome with him, all those who were now experiencing this clash of thrones were having a come to Jesus moment as it related to their power and their desire to hold on to their power. And so, the Magi worship Christ as Lord. Herod is threatened by Christ because he's his own Lord. This incarnation of Jesus Christ, God become man, it's life-changing, it's liberating, but first it's confronting. It will liberate you. It will comfort you. It will transform you. But first it confronts you. And this is what we see going on right here in this moment. It's liberating, you know, this gospel of Jesus Christ because we learn that this king did not come to judge and condemn and banish us. He came to bear our judgment and adopt us and forgive us and extend grace to us. So, it's, it, so the message of the gospel is liberating. It's life-changing because his arrival means that this fragile life is not all that there is. That when we look out the world, uh, out the window at the world in which we're living in, the, the beauty plagued by brokenness, we don't look out on all of it and just say, well, this sort of this endless catalog of injustice is as good as it gets. The gospel is, 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 is liberating and confronting because we recognize in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that this life is not all there is. And that gives profound meaning to the day-to-day struggle 
Because it's not no longer just meaningless suffering until life is over. In fact, all of the terror of our suffering is used by the goodness of God to, 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 to push us into the, the depths of the anchor of our true hope, which is Him, so that there's actually nothing that life can do to those of us who know that this life is not all that there is. It is liberating. But before it's liberating, it's confronting. Because if there is a king, then there's a kingdom. If there is a king, then there's rule. If there is a king, then there's law. If there is a divine king who transcends all things, then his capital T truth transcends all of our small T truths. And we're brought to this moment, like Herod and all in Jerusalem with him, where we must make a choice. Will I bend my knee to the king? Will I allow him to be the king? Will I relinquish my throne so that I am not the God of my own heart, of my own life, that I am not the savior of my own emotions, heart, and mind, that I am not the curator of my identity? But will I relinquish all of those things? Will I bend my knee to his wisdom and his ways and his word as the faithful guide to my life, to my ethics, to what I think about how I have to navigate the nuances and the challenges of being a political person in Kitchener-Waterloo. The, the constant nuances and challenges between the wisdom of God's word and the prevailing voices of our culture. Will I permit him to guide and direct the way that I think about mercy and justice, the poor, sexual ethics, the sanctity of life, all of the hot topics of this particular point in history, which is our lifetime, will I bend my knee and allow the wisdom of this great king, the king, to be king in my life? Will I relinquish my throne? There's a clash of thrones right at the beginning of this. You know, um, Herod, he's so troubled, he he loses his mind, really. Because we didn't read the text, but he goes on to, to massacre innocents to protect his throne. I mean, the justification that he would go through to protect his throne, it's unfathomable. Dr. Craig Blomberg is a New Testament historian. He estimates with other historians, you know, share sort of in this world of scholarship of trying to pinpoint things like the population of ancient cities. They estimate that ancient Bethlehem would have had somewhere between 300 to 1,000 residents. So when Herod massacred the innocents, it was somewhere around, historians estimate, around 20, 20, 30 children. Now I'm not telling you that, I'm not giving you that small number because a small number means it's not a big deal. The slaughter of one child is horrific in every sense. The reason I'm mentioning that is because Herod was such a terrible individual that the massacre that took place here doesn't even appear in other history books. Some critics have said, oh, well, then perhaps we can just throw away this account because it doesn't appear in other history books. No, no. The reason it doesn't appear in other history books is not because he didn't do it. It's because it's so small it didn't make his highlight real. If, if Herod had Instagram and his PR people all showed up and said, we've got to put a highlight reel of all your best stuff, that would have never made his IG. Because he's like, I've done way, way, way bigger things than this. It just doesn't even appear. Caesar Augustus and Herod had so many confrontations, which are recorded in other um, sources of history. So many disputes and arguments that Caesar Augustus had a real 
you know, ancient world sick Greek burn on Herod. And it was a little phrase that he used to say, speaking of how volatile Herod was, because he was going to protect his throne, that uh, the, the phrase was, it's a play on words, so I'll say it, I'll just give you the two Greek words so it makes, you get that it's a play on words in Greek. Caesar Augustus would say, it's safer to be Herod's heis than his huios. And heis is pig, and huios is son. So Caesar Augustus said of this guy, it's safer to be his pig than his son. He's that volatile. He will kill you to keep his throne. Now, why am I saying all this? Why am I saying that not only do we need to keep Christ in Christmas, but we need to keep Herod in Christmas? I'm saying it because on the surface, you and I are nothing like Herod. But underneath the outworking of that sin, Herod's desire to protect his throne and his rule is actually the same as the root problem of Adam's sin of self-rule, which is actually the same as our sin that we tend to fall into of protecting our own rule. And the driving force under every selfish, unloving, hurtful, oppressive, unjust, unmerciful act in the world is the ego coronated as king. And you and I, in our own ways, can, or, can coronate our ego as king. And when we do, the things we will justify to protect our thrones, the relationships we will sacrifice, the inability to confess our sin to our, our spouses or our children or our friends or our colleagues to protect the throne. It is astounding the lengths that we will go to to do this. And so, as we you know, posture ourselves towards 2022, what we all want, what our neighbors want, what our colleagues want, what our classmates want, is we, we want peace and joy and we want strength and, and comfort in our hearts. We want, uh, we want a year of security and not in, uh, uncertainty. That's, these are the things that we want. Um, but those aren't going to come up from our thrones. Those aren't going, those, the deepest longings of what you need and want out of this year aren't going to come at the small insignificant thrones of our uh, political leaders. I'm not saying that because we should you know, snub our noses at them. We ought to pray for them. We're called to pray for them scripturally. But we shouldn't be looking to them for things that are far above their pay grade. Not looking to small and significant thrones to give us things that are only found at one throne. Turn to Christ and Him alone for the comfort and the strength and the, the, the lasting peace and joy that just can't get destroyed when something small goes sideways. A future security that can only come from Christ's throne. That's the wisest thing to do for us to be like the Magi and bend our knee. And this rejection of Christ by the religious leaders at the beginning of his life foreshadows the rejection of the religious leaders at the end of his life. So let's move on from this clash of thrones to this epiphany of grace. These magi, they are a group. I know the nativity sets tell us there's three, but the scriptures won't tell us how many there were. But they're this group of cultural leaders and thinkers, and they had political prowess and economic prowess. They were the movers and shakers of culture. Um, 
They were mystics in the sense that they looked to the stars for answers in a way that as moderns we sort of laugh at and say, ha, 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 uh, oh, these silly ancients. Um, but they were also doing the most complicated math on planet Earth at the time and still today, which is, you know, calculating things in the cosmos, the work of astronomy. It's just that they had combined the work of astronomy with sort of the, the mystic components of astrology and they sort of combined these things together. But my point in saying all this is that they come from Persia and this shows us the cosmic lengths that God would go to to show his grace. That these, <laughs> that these are the ones. They're not looking for Jesus. They're looking to the stars for answers. And God so desires to move in cosmic lengths of grace to save those who aren't looking for him that he chooses to make a move in the heavens, in the heavenlies. And he does something in the heavenlies in such a way that it catches the attention of these cultural leaders. And, you know, Herod doesn't know what it means, and so he goes to, you look at the text, he goes to the chief priests and the scribes, he says, what does this mean? And so they quote Micah, because they know the scriptures. So they're like, oh, well, here it is. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. But notice that their next move isn't to say, we ought to go with these guys. I've been studying and memorizing these texts my whole life. This, there might be something to this. this. Could this be the fulfillment of all things? I mean, if I was to summarize the Gospel of Matthew, the theme of Matthew in a word, it would be fulfillment. Because that theme just keeps on coming up. And so, but notice that they're like, nah, we're good. They send the Magi off, but they don't go looking for Jesus. So this epiphany of grace is the lengths that God will go to to save those who don't even know that they need him. And uh, so they see this thing in the heavens. What did they see? Well, we don't know. The, the easy, the simple answer is God did something divine, the end. And because God is God and he can do anything, that could very well be the answer, that, that what they saw was divine. Uh, however, there are scholars who have uh, considered what things could have occurred in the heavenly bodies that did catch the attention of these, the, these ancients, that, that set this whole thing in motion. Did God move in this physical universe of ours to draw the attention of the existence of not only his majesty, but draw them to Christ, the one who would save in grace. And so David Hughes would be uh, one of the scholars who's done work on this. He wrote a book called Bethlehem Star. And in, in the book, he posits different scientific theories as to what could have been occurring in the heavens that they could have seen. One of those theories being that there was uh, what he calls a triple convergence of Jupiter and Saturn. Triple convergence meaning that at three points, the orbits all maneuvered themselves in such a way that both Saturn and Jupiter were visible, but they were uh, aligned in such a way that from the east looking in the sky, it would have been an unmistakably bright occurrence that in that orbit would have actually repeated three times over the course of two years, which would have given the appearance of, uh, not just the appearance of motion, but literal motion as the universe is all spinning, and that these studiers of the stars would have followed this triple convergence of Jupiter and Saturn. Last year, there was a, a night where Jupiter and Saturn were uh, going to be incredibly bright in the sky. They weren't aligned like, the, like what perhaps could have happened here, but they were very bright. And my brother got this monster telescope, and I went to his house, and you actually had a controller, like an Xbox controller, so that when you found Jupiter and Saturn, you had to move the telescope with the controller to track it. That's how fast everything was moving. And he would find it, and he would say, oh, and he would look at it for a little while, and then he would move away, and then I would look at it. And in the amount of time that 
he moved away from the telescope and I took the controller and looked into the telescope, it was out of the view and you had to continue to move this telescope through the starry sky to track the movement of Jupiter and Saturn. So we don't know uh, with certainty that that was what occurred, but the point is God is not in the business of trying to hide himself. His fingerprints are across the cosmos. And he moved heaven and earth to draw these pagans who are not looking for Jesus to Jesus. It is an epiphany of the, the majesty of God's grace and his desire to save the nations. I say I'm, the reason I'm giving all this to you is because I want you to see that these magi were unlikely worshipers. And the epiphany refers to this moment where God draws unlikely worshipers. And friends, you and I, every one of us sitting in this room, every one of you listening to this online, we are unlikely worshipers. God is in the business of saving by sheer grace unlikely worshipers. And so what happens next is the gospel pattern. God moves in grace in spite of us. And then in verse 2, the Magi say, we've come to worship him. And worship is what happens when we come down off our thrones. Worship is what happens when God who's moved first towards us in grace, when we respond to that grace and we leave the smallness of our little thrones and we leave our own smallness and we find rest and strength in his greatness and we marvel at the greatness of his throne. And there's a significance to this. It doesn't mean that Christians were worshipers and were somehow, you know, uh, you know irrelevant in, in, in our comings and goings of the city. These cultural leaders, they left and they continued to use all of their gifts for the benefit of the city. The only difference was their life was now orbiting around something else. Christ and him crucified. You see, worship is not singing. Worship is centering. We do singing because singing facilitates centering. But worship is all about centering. And so these cultural leaders, they see the movement in the cosmos. They go and they see the Christ child. They worship Christ and then they go back into the city and they're continuing to use their gifts, whether they were political or scientific or academic or whatever they were using their gifts. But now their whole life is orbiting around something else. This is a picture of you and I. The unlikely worshipers who now go into the city the, the, with our vocations or, or our places of recreation or education. And we use all of our gifts for the benefit and the blessing of the city. They come and they bring their gifts. Verse 11 says, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, the metal of kings, frankincense, the thing of priests, and myrrh, a spice they used in embalming. That's an interesting shower gift. But the, the king, the priest, the one who had come to die, these prophetic gifts are given and showered at Christ's feet, the king who comes unlike every other king who came to lay his life down. And so in the same way that those magi left that house and their worship continued, you and I leave this house and our worship continues. We gather every seven days to center around him, but our centering must be daily as we continue to orbit our lives around his goodness, his love, his grace. And then we carry, with, carry that with us into our respective vocations as our ministry continues, which leads to the last thing this morning, the ministry of reconciliation. 
The Magi were unlikely worshipers, we are unlikely worshipers, and we are being sent into this city. That through us, God would continue to draw other unlikely worshipers. This is the mission of the church. We are usually very quick to decide who is unlikely to worship, who is unlikely to come to faith in Christ, who is unlikely to say, yes, I'll come with you and uh, join you on a Sunday morning and see this thing that is so important uh, in your life. I'll come. We're, we're quick to decide who's unlikely to worship, but we're unqualified because God has a long track record of saving unlikely worshipers. In fact, he only saves unlikely worshipers. And you and I have been given this ministry of reconciliation. That's Matthew chapter 5. Right? It's no longer a star that God is sending as a light into the world. It is you and I as church. We are the light that he is sending into the world. That's Matthew 5. The light that he's sending, is sending into the world. Our mission, 2 Corinthians 5, in Christ, we are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. Right? He has reconciled us to himself through Christ his church. And he has now given us this ministry of reconciliation that God appeals through us. And the good news here as I close this sermon is that the ministry of reconciliation you and I have as we go into the city is not the church, is not us pointing to ourselves. We are not the saviors of the city, but we're not, in, we're not you know, in, inactive observers of the city either. We are these ministers. And it's important that we recognize that our ministry isn't that we point to ourselves because it's easy for us to look around this room and recognize, uh, and again, the burden of the salvation of Kitchener-Waterloo is, is not on your shoulders, but you and I are not passive observers either. So for us to engage as active ministers in this city, as the light now that God is sending into the city, we have to take solace in the fact that our call is not to stand in the spotlight and point to ourselves. Because the church is a mess. You're all a mess. I'm a mess. Praise God, there are bright spots of renewal in all of our lives. But if you spend enough time with me, you will conclude there are areas of my life that I could really use a little more Holy Spirit. And spoiler alert, I might have that conclusion about you if I spent enough time with you. And so because the church is a mess, we have to take solace in the fact that we are his beloved mess. And so the ministry that we are called to as lights in the world is, is not to stand in the spotlight and say, look at us. We are headlights. Saying, look at him. We are the lights that he is sending into the world. And so may we, by the power of God's grace, by the goodness of his gospel, go into the city as unlikely worshipers so that through us he would draw more. Let's pray.